Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a financial turnaround. Governor Murphy today touting improvements to the state's financial forecast, but is it sustainable? Our revenues, excuse me, so far are holding up are holding up largely well. Plus, Washington gridlock. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill shed some light on yet another push to avert the looming government shutdown. We're continuing to work for it. I think we have a plan for a continuing resolution. Um, but then as far as the supplemental, that really remains in limbo here. Also, Senate campaign controversy for the First Lady. Intimidation and retaliation allegedly used against college Democrats to cancel their endorsement of opponent Andy Kim. Well, it, it was scary to hear an employee of the state party tell us that we were going to make powerful enemies with the Murphys. And code blue, more snow on the way and temperatures plummeting, forcing shelters in all 21 counties to open their doors for those in need. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Thursday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Well, just three years ago, the state was staring at an uncertain and potentially catastrophic financial situation with a once in a century pandemic casting an ominous shadow on revenue and budget predictions. But catastrophe didn't strike. In fact, according to many economists, New Jersey is now on better fiscal footing than it's been in decades. And today, Governor Murphy made the case before a group of financial analysts in New York that his policies helped steer the state clear of that economic economic disaster. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. Governor Murphy gave a candid appraisal of New Jersey's economic status during a Q&A with financial analysts in New York. He noted a big boost in school funding will take center stage in his upcoming budget message as New Jersey reaches the final year of adjustments to state education aid. School funding is still going to be a multi-hundred million up. That's going to be the biggest up that we'll have in the budget. And that's been the case, five to 700 million a year now for every year I've been here. That will ultimately reach its mountaintop with the budget that I'll be announcing. The governor took a modest victory lap for helping to stabilize New Jersey's economy, raise its credit rating, and stow away an extra $8 billion budget surplus. But he also ticked off a list of looming economic hurdles, among them tax revenues that have fallen short, down $530 million, or about 3%, since last July compared to the prior year. But Murphy's hoping to see improvements. Our revenues excuse me, so far are holding up, are holding up largely well. Um, January, April's a huge month, obviously, for obvious reasons. January's a pretty big month. So the state had been in this circumstance where it had a lot of extra money flying around for things like boosting pension payments and increasing K through 12 school aid funding. 
Now we, we may be in a little tighter environment. NJ Spotlight News budget and finance correspondent John Reitmeyer says holiday shopping could help provide the sales tax revenues New Jersey needs to cover the record-breaking $55 billion spending plan that Murphy signed last June. The governor could also dip into surplus or cut spending, but more bills are coming due. There's a whole new set of challenges that have to be confronted, and, and they include what to do with NJ Transit, what the next transportation trust fund renewal is going to look like, and also how potentially the state will manage its next fiscal year if it's going to, if it's going to be playing out in a much tighter revenue environment. Reitmeyer says Murphy's sticking to an economic strategy that's earned accolades from financial industry analysts. The governor announced New Jersey just paid another $500 million to reduce bonded debt, and he'll make another full state pension payment. Finding stable funding for NJ Transit, which Murphy said he'd do, quote, if it kills me, remains a sore spot. We have, in many respects, fixed NJ Transit through the customer's lens, reliability, safety, confidence, on-time performance, but we now are going to have to tackle what is a growing fiscal challenge, and we're working on solutions there. Meanwhile, state lawmakers have promised significant but expensive property tax relief. Murphy's message? The good value for money equation is hugely important in New Jersey. So, you know, as opposed to realistically, we're ever going to be the low-cost state to either do business in or raise your family in. The governor's pushing to grow the economy. He said expect announcements about offshore wind and a fintech hub. The governor's budget message is delivered in late February. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. While the state shores up its finances, Congress is struggling with not one, but two potential government shutdown deadlines, racing against the clock to pass a short-term spending bill by midnight tomorrow. As a snowstorm slated to hit Washington, D.C., threatens to derail the whole thing. The Senate's done their part voting to approve a stopgap bill. Now it's on to the House, and I'm joined by Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, who's in the Capitol for the latest. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time. Let me ask you first about this log jam that's happening really over uh, aid with Ukraine and looking at the border policies here in the U.S. What's the likelihood that the House will take up a vote in time to avert a shutdown tomorrow night? So... I think we're going to avert a shutdown. We're working, uh, we actually have a snowstorm coming here into Washington. So we're, I know the Senate's uh, working right now to get the continuing resolution over to the House. So this won't actually be passing our new budget, which we still um, haven't been able to do. This will be continuing though, continuing last year's budget so we can keep the government open as we continue to work to resolve some of the issues we still have, getting the appropriations bills done. Um, and even that, even the basic budget um, continues to run into snags with the House Freedom Caucus. The speaker announces uh, how we're gonna move forward and then um, the far right of his party uh, undermines him and tries to uh, stop all forward movement. So we're continuing to work forward. I think we have a plan for a continuing resolution. 
Um, but then as far as the supplemental, that really remains in limbo here. And right, we'll clarify, this is a stopgap bill that needs to be, this continuing resolution that needs to be voted on by tomorrow night, not the full spending plan. But it seems like you all are in the same position uh, you were in previously when we had House Speaker McCarthy. How do you get around this then? Well, I think that's a really good question. And again, um, it, you know, my concern was always that it doesn't get easier when you get into a presidential year. And we've already, of course, heard uh, former President Trump suggesting to not do things, you know, don't get a border solution, wait until I get into office. Um, so again, just trying to undermine the functioning of the country uh, for pure partisan politics, for which you know, is the very opposite of what we need to see from our elected officials when we have so much at stake. We see a very different Congress yeah. in the last session. We see all of the bipartisan work, huge, expansive bipartisan bills like the bipartisan infrastructure law that we work together to get across the finish line. With, and yet the, the House GOP simply cannot govern. When you see the GOP in the majority in these legislative bodies, they, they simply can't govern at this point. And it's become so egregious, we're seeing this kind of breaking point as we try just to get the budget passed, just to get the supplemental passed. So it's really unclear uh, how and if we're going to be able to do that supplemental with that critical border support. Well, let me uh, switch gears then. Um, looking at the, the frustration that has been in Congress, you had a a really good quarter in terms of fundraising. Um, obviously, you are up for re-election this year, but there are other potential races looming down the pike. What are you thinking about in terms of a gubernatorial run? Well, as you can imagine right now, given um, how I've laid out what's going on in the House, what I am focused on is making sure we get back into the majority in the House. There is so much that we passed in the last Congress that is good for New Jersey. So whether it is the Gateway Tunnel Project, um, continuing to invest in research and development, I've seen huge expansions in businesses in my district. Um, we need to invest in our schools. One of the biggest concerns I hear in my district is the businesses can't don't have enough of a workforce. They need more people to fuel the economy as we move into this new economy. So that's what I'm focused on now. I do think we have uh, a great shot at future planning for the state. I think the new economy we're building is going to work very, very well for New Jersey. All right. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, always good to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman today threw his support behind Representative Andy Kim in the high-stakes political battle over New Jersey's U.S. Senate seat. A recent recording first shared with the New York Times reveals just how critical endorsements are in this race after a youth coordinator for the Democratic State Committee seemingly tried to pressure the college Democrats of NJ against endorsing Kim instead of frontrunner Tammy Murphy. A senior political correspondent David Cruz reports it's a rare behind-the-scenes look at this race and a potential sign of a weakness in the Murphy campaign. During election season, it's easy to get sucked in by news of a recorded phone call where one side says they felt politically threatened by the other. Maybe you read the New York Times piece on how a college junior, a part-time paid organizer for the state Democratic Party, allegedly tried to pressure the college young Dems into canceling their endorsement of Andy Kim in the upcoming Senate primary. 
I think if you endorse this early on, it would only hinder you um, in the long run in, ter in terms of your organization. And I would be worried about that. It was scary to hear an employee of the state party tell us that we were going to make powerful enemies. Nate Howard was on the other end of that call, a recording of which we heard, and it sounded friendly enough. But political threats are in the eye of the beholder, and the Murphy campaign says they get that but point out that the college junior you heard on that call did not represent the campaign, and it called her comments totally and completely inappropriate. But there's another part of the call which might point to what observers say is a potential weak point of the Murphy campaign, a lack of street cred among progressives, party grassroots, and yeah, young people. This from the same organizer in the same phone call. I want you to know, Nate, I am voting for Andy M. I, he, I am supporting him this primary. Like, I will be casting a vote for him. I think he is yeah. the best person for young people. Perception-wise, she does have the perception that she is the organization's candidate, that she is the regular Democrat. And so um, that means that if you are from a group that's typically more disaffected from the organizations, more disaffected from the line, that you may want to shop elsewhere. The Tammy Murphy campaign says it's got plenty of grassroots and progressive support. But the Phil Murphy administration, in which the First Lady has played a major role, has had a lukewarm at best relationship with the left, who make up a bulk of primary voters. Other candidates in the race say Tammy Murphy is the symbol of the political establishment and not in a good way. The concern is real. The concern calls into a double standard and an overreach of power. And we, all of us who are, who are activists of the Democratic Party, are concerned about it. So there's not a real base of support for her on the ground. The people who are gravitating to my campaign are, are the people that are just fed up with our, our broken politics. And I think that, you know, that, that phone call that was uh, putting pressure on the college Democrats, that was an example of this broken politics that people can't stand. And that's why I stepped up to run. Progressives are often the loudest voices in the party, but their political potency is often debated. In a multi-candidate primary, though, a united block of voters is clearly desirable. But in politics, what supporters say isn't always what they do a lesson learned by one college student this week. I think what I learned is that I don't want to have to be that person who is constantly compromising on my values and is working to help candidates that I don't even like or support. That's not the career I want. Said almost every college-age student of politics ever before jumping into campaigns that will challenge that at every turn. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. The dramatic hearing into last summer's Port Newark cargo ship fire wrapped up today with investigators from the U.S. Coast Guard and National Transportation Safety Board learning even more new details about the deadly incident, including confirmation from a doctor in the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System on what killed the two Newark firefighters who got trapped in the blaze. Wayne Brooks Jr. and Augusto Akabu had toxic levels of carbon dioxide in their bodies, their deaths not the result of burns or blunt force trauma. It's just one example of the gritty details shared during six days of painstaking testimony.
Ted Goldberg reports. Was the key information con uh, conveyed by the ship's crew to you? Were you able to understand eventually? Yes, took some teeth pulling. On the last day of scheduled testimony into the investigation of the fire on the Grande Costa Devorio last summer, Battalion Chief James Cupco laid out how Newark firefighters didn't have a complete picture on how to fight the fire. Were you aware that the watertight door on deck 12 was um, open and that they were unable to get it closed? If there was anything mechanically wrong with it. That information was not offered up by the ship's crew. Battalion Chief Cupco testified that between the language barrier and spotty radio reception, it was difficult for firefighters to get control over the fire as it spread quickly. At any point, were you made aware uh, that they were having issues closing that ramp off? We were never made aware of any mechanical issues. According to his testimony, it got so hot on board that firefighters' boots were falling apart. It was just members that had the leather boots. Uh, which are purchased by themselves. It appeared that the water that was pooling from them cooling the cars on deck 12 was being heated up by the surface. I'm not a, a scientist, but it appeared that the, the glue that attaches the boot to the shoe was coming undone. Another issue for Newark firefighters was unfamiliar territory. As former fire chief and current assistant public safety director Rufus Jackson testified yesterday, battling shipboard fires was unfamiliar territory, and few firefighters were ever properly trained. How many Newark firefighters were in attendance with you, estimation? I don't recall the actual numbers. I, I do recall that there was one other member who was under my previous command who was in attendance that was on the ship that night as well. Some people are blaming the lack of training on Chief Jackson, whose testimony yesterday confirmed that firefighters haven't gotten in-person training for shipboard fires since 2014. Edward Kelly leads the International Association of Firefighters Union, and yesterday he said the Newark Fire Department needs new leadership that reports directly to the mayor, not a division of public safety reporting to police officers. It's time to prioritize firefighting in the city of Newark. On the steps outside of where the hearing is happening, Kelly spoke with the victims' families yesterday and said Jackson must be replaced. Meanwhile, in testimony today, Battalion Chief Cupco said that the training he did receive nearly a decade ago was helpful, but he could have used more. What if any information was provided during that training uh, that, that you utilized in this situation? It was just general knowledge, how the vehicle is going to be on the ship, the layout. The, the gentleman who gave the course from the Port Authority was a retired police officer, and he stated in the course this is not for tactics. It's just for awareness. You said you have annual exercises. How was Newark's participation in those? Minimal. And how about the other 16 municipalities? Strong. They wanted to participate, but they just didn't have the money. Port Security Specialist Frank Gorman leads New Jersey's Regional Fireboat Task Force. He testified yesterday that he knew Newark's main fireboat was out of service the day of the fire. Are you aware of any circumstances where the Newark, Newark Fire Department fireboats were called upon but were unavailable? because they were out of service. Yes. And that happened prior to this incident. Yes. As the hearing winds down, the investigation continues for the Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board. They say a report will come out once their investigation ends. In Union, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Governor Murphy is renewing a pledge to shut down the state's largest youth detention center after 50 men filed a lawsuit on Wednesday alleging they were sexually abused there when they were boys. 
The lawsuit accuses the New Jersey training school in Monroe Township of a decades-long, quote, culture of abuse that was allowed to go on virtually unchecked. The disturbing allegations span from the 1970s to as recently as 2010, alleging guards, counselors and other staff sexually abused the juvenile detainees and threatened them with more confinement if they spoke up. The facility has long been considered troubled, and in 2018, the state announced plans to close it, but stalled, citing a lack of other facilities to house youth in custody. Well, in a statement today, a spokesperson for Governor Murphy said he's, quote, committed to the responsible closing of the center. The attorney general also announced an investigation into the claims made in the lawsuit. According to the state, there are currently 200 youth housed there between the ages of 12 and 23 years old. In our spotlight on business report, the owners of two now defunct nursing homes are getting booted from New Jersey's Medicaid program. Acting State Comptroller Kevin Walsh announced that starting in March, Princeton Care and Woodland Behavioral and Nursing Center will be suspended from Medicaid, its primary source of funding. The owners were given 100 days to divest from the other nursing homes they own in the state. Princeton Care, you'll recall, is the center that ran out of cash and abruptly evicted residents in one day on September 1st, leaving some sitting in wheelchairs on the sidewalk waiting for family members to pick them up. Walsh's report accused the owners, Gail and Ezra Bogner, of, quote, recklessness and neglect that caused serious harm and trauma to the residents of the center. Last month, the owners of Limecrest Subacute Rehab Center in Andover were also given 100 days notice to cut ties with the company that controls the nursing home or face Medicaid suspension. These are the same folks who owned Woodland Behavioral and Nursing Center, which was once New Jersey's largest nursing home. That got shut down by the state in 2022 for failing to protect the health and safety of its residents. Turning to Wall Street, stocks tipped higher today, signaling a rebound from the month's losses. Here's how the markets closed. Most of the state has been issued a winter weather advisory as we brace for the second storm this week. The National Weather Service is predicting significant snowfall on Friday between three to six inches ahead of a frigid weekend. This time, though, it's the southern and central half of the state that'll get hit with the most snow, especially western areas closest to Pennsylvania. Governor Murphy tonight reminding residents New Jersey is still under the state of emergency he declared for last week's major rain storm and a code blue has been activated for all 21 counties with temperatures plunging below freezing that enables shelters and warming centers to open across the state but in ocean county one of the only areas in new jersey without a full-time shelter access is limited and often difficult for those most in need senior correspondent joanna gagas takes a deeper look to find out why i was standing at the right place at the right time when somebody pulled me in um, Where were you living before this? I was living in my car. I recently just came back from Miami, Florida, but it was it was it was really bad up there. So you know what I'm saying. But, but you came back to some cold weather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what brought me here was my addiction and my mental health. You know, I lost my housing because of that. Sorry. 
For Tracinda, Susan, and Jesse, the nights could be deadly cold if it weren't for Just Believe here in Toms River. It's a nonprofit that sets up a temporary homeless shelter only between the months of November and March in a space provided by the township. People are coming in and they've been out in the woods on the street. You know, so I make sure when they come in, I'm in a happy, jolly mood. I welcome them with a big smile and lots of love. Right, because they're not getting that on the street. You know, I spent some time homeless, so I know what it feels like. Just Believe, like many warming centers around the state, provides shelter to people in need once a code blue has been activated. Statewide, that temperature was set at 32 degrees a few years ago, but in Tom's River, the town council approved a code blue to be activated at 35 degrees. That helped us uh, able to help more people because we got a extra couple degrees to open a little bit earlier than the others. Every year it varies, um, you know, but I would say we get probably an extra 20, 30 days every year um, because of the, the change. And while that ability to help is what drives the folks here at Just Believe, they also face the reality of turning people away because they reached their capacity of 30 beds early this winter. I have a hard time turning them away. So uh, I've how many have you had to turn away this winter? I don't have the number off the top of my head. 10? 10 people. Okay, so we've had to turn away 10 people. And that's tough um, because these are people that need help. We need a full-time shelter. Five months out of the year is great. But it's not enough, and they lose touch with some of their clients in the months that they close, says founder and CEO Paul Hulse. That's especially challenging because they work to connect them with other social services like mental health and addiction counseling. Maybe the county will give us a building and say, we want you guys to run our year-round shelter. If we had a full-time shelter, we'd be able to get people plugged into services a little bit easier. We'd actually be able to make a difference. And I'm pretty sure a full-time shelter is actually more cost-effective anyway than what we're doing now, than social services, putting people up in hotels every night. You know, at least this way we can get people plugged into housing and, and go that route. Permanent housing is the ultimate goal and one that Susan Reed is going to experience for the first time in years today. I have a new place to move into tonight. Uh, a real house. I'm excited. We're going to get all your stuff. We're going to pack it in the yep. van. It changed the course of my life. Like, I'm not going here until the end. I, I, I made a turn to better myself. That's what Tracinda Cradle is working towards. I'm trying to get back to where I was at, you know, because I have grandkids that adore me, you know, and they always love being around me, and they can't be around me here. And for Jesse Jenkins, this has become his chosen family. God blessed me to have a family that he wanted me to have. Because, like, these guys care about me, and I care about them as well. This week alone, Just Believe found housing for four people. So far this winter, it's been 42. And last year's total was 312 people who got out of the cold and now have a chance at a better future. In Tom's River, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.